Well, good morning. Nice to be back here with you. Hmm. If, uh, if we were sitting in the same room together, um, I would probably start by just being quiet together for a little while and uh, feeling what it feels like to be in the same space. So even though we are not in the same room, I think I'd like to do that this morning. Let's just sit quietly for a minute or so. So good morning again. I, uh, I hope you're finding ways to uh, keep well, to, uh, to keep your mind and your body uh, healthy, at ease, and, uh, and engaged during, during this time. Uh, a number of years ago, um, I spent a little over two years uh, training as a monastic in the, uh, the Buddhist tradition, uh, Western branch of the Ajahn Chah Thai forest lineage. And uh, right at the very end of my time, uh, just about a week before leaving the monastery where I was staying in uh, Ontario, in Canada, I woke up one morning. We get up, I think we got up about five a little before five, I woke up probably half an hour before I usually do uh, with a very peculiar sensation in, um, I think it was my left lower leg. And I'd only felt that sensation once before in my life uh, when I had a tick embedded in my back. And as soon as I kind of came to consciousness and recognized what the sensation was, I, I went into high alert. I leapt out of bed, turned on the light. It had a little solar panel attached to the kuti, to the cabin, and turned on the light, lifted up my um, uh, long johns. It was quite cold. It was November in Canada. And sure enough, there was a very tiny little deer tick embedded in my leg. And uh, thus began the, a journey of about three years of uh, dealing with all kinds of uh, complications from tick-borne illness. And uh, at first we waited. Um, I had some other conditions, so uh, it was not great for me to take lots of antibiotics. So we said, well, let's get the tick tested and see what happens. 
see if symptoms arise. I didn't get the rash, but within a week I started getting headaches. And within two weeks, um, started feeling body, body aches and pains. And, uh, so we did some antibiotics and, um, few weeks, uh, started to stretch into months and, uh, which then turned into years. I was very fortunate to have had, um, over 15 years of mindfulness and meditation practice, uh, Dharma contemplation under my belt, so to speak. Uh, I don't know how I could have gotten through it without that. One can resist, uh, can get through a hard time kind of gritting your teeth and holding your breath uh, for a little while um, or hoping. But uh, when something goes on for weeks and weeks into months, um, you need a different quality to make it through. The the heart needs to surrender. Um, And what we're all living through right now is, uh, I think, akin to that. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, So this week and next week, uh, I want to talk about two very powerful qualities on the path to awakening that support each other, which we might not necessarily always pair together, and which confer um, a certain strength in our lives, uh, and in our contemplative practice. Uh, So this week I want to talk about patience, building on the meditation we did yesterday. And next week I want to talk about a companion quality uh, of resolve, a kind of uh, determination. The pace of our lives these days, um, well, perhaps not these days, but... uh, before the shelter in place, the kind of ordinary pace of busyness and distraction um, masks the importance of patience and resolve because we are so occupied, most of us, much of the time. And the shelter in place that many of us are living with right now reveals, I think, the importance of these qualities in our own day-to-day, very personal, direct life much more clearly. So the first uh, point I want to make just to kind of set up this uh, conversation here is that contemplative practice rests upon a a kind of counterintuitive pivot. The Buddha called it um, going against the stream. In fact, there's a a legend that uh, the night before he was awakened, he had several dreams that kind of foreshadowed his awakening. And one of the dreams, in one of the dreams, uh, someone offered him alms food in a golden bowl and told him to keep the bowl. And after he finished eating, he said, I I don't have any use for this bowl. And they said, please keep it. You know, it would be insulting to me and to my family if you, you know, didn't, didn't keep it as an offering. So he went to the river to bathe and had the bowl. And afterwards, he took the bowl And he said, okay, if I'm going to become awakened, may this bowl float upstream. And he put the bowl in the water. And as the story goes, the bowl floated upstream. This is the dream that he had. So there's this sense of going against the current. 
which current? Well, the, the first and foremost, the, the current of our society, and at a deeper level, the currents of our own mind. So the, the ordinary orientation in life is to seek satisfaction and fulfillment, which is um, uh, universal, um, human, and healthy, the, the, the longing for fulfillment and satisfaction. The, the ordinary orientation is to seek that satisfaction through uh, getting something, through acqu- acquisition, uh, acquiring um, pleasant experiences, pleasant sensations, status, uh, wealth, uh, even knowledge. And so um, the default mm, kind of the default logic of the ordinary orientation is that my happiness will come from what I experience. And so we look to the content of our lives for not only our happiness and fulfillment, but our sense of self-worth. On the contemplative path, there is this pivot that goes against the stream where we honor the deep longing for fulfillment. That's our birthright as human beings. But instead of seeking that fulfillment through gaining something, through getting or having something, through acquiring, whether it's material possessions, experience, or status, knowledge, instead, we recognize that fulfillment comes through cultivating a different relationship to life. That how we experience things becomes more important than what we experience, than the content of our life. And so on the contemplative path, in order to um, make this shift of how am I relating to the world, to my own mind and body, we strengthen certain qualities as we move towards the, uh, the goal and the aim of a very kind of deep and profound letting go inside. So for the contemplative, the way we pay attention and engage with life is more important than what happens. And our happiness, our fulfillment, our sense of satisfaction are connected to the qualities we bring to the moment, how we are paying attention, how we are living. Sometimes um, the Dharma, the, the teachings that the Buddha left are talked about as a way of life. So we are studying and learning how to live, how to be skillful in the way that we live rather than trying to control the content of our experience. So skill in living. The word that the Buddha used for meditation uh, is bhavana. Bhavana literally means cultivation. So it's like growing a garden. And if you've ever done any farming or gardening, or even if you have houseplants, you know it takes time. It takes patience and tending, and one has to trust in the process. It's an organic unfolding. You can't rush it. You don't see results right away. You just keep putting in the conditions, and then the the fruits emerge. So this pivot, this movement from 
getting what I want, my happiness coming from from what I experience to how am I living, what is my relationship to life, and beginning to strengthen certain qualities in that relationship. What qualities of mind and heart do I bring to bear on what's happening? So within that range of qualities that we can cultivate, mindfulness tends to get all the press, right? So, and for good reason, mindfulness is talked about as one of the leaders. It's kind of the, the if you've ever seen geese uh, flying in the sky, you know that they fly in a, in a formation and there's one at the front and they, they break the wind for each other. So mindfulness is kind of like that one that's right, right out front there leading the way, and then the other qualities come along to support it. But truly, there's no kind of one thing on the path. The, um, the, the elegance and the beauty of the Buddha's teachings is that it's, um, it's, a, it's a way of understanding that's, that's looking at systems, actually, that's looking at relationships and saying that in order to free ourselves uh, internally from the prison of our own fears and anxieties and neuroses, uh, as well as relationally and socially, um, we need a whole bunch of different factors working together, a constellation of conditions that create um, that create the um, the circumstances for the mind to open for the heart to open. And so the different qualities that we can cultivate, um, they're different lists, this kind of pedagogical structure in the Buddha's teachings. One is the seven factors of awakening. Some of you are familiar with those. Another collection of these qualities is called the 10 paramis, or in Sanskrit, the paramitas. And these are 10 qualities that the Buddha was said to have perfected in his own cultivation of the path. Uh, qualities like generosity, uh, ethical living, simplicity, energy, wisdom, truthfulness, um, patience, determination, kindness, equanimity. So I want to talk about two of these, patience and determination. And these qualities, this list of 10, is a very practical way of bringing our uh, contemplation and spirituality into our life because it focuses on how are we living? What are we cultivating? How do we handle difficulties when they arise? What resources do we have inside? So the way the mind works um, that the Buddha understood 2,600 years ago and which we have now um, kind of proven uh, today with modern neuroscience is that um, it learns in part through repetition, that repeated behavior uh, strengthens certain pathways in the mind. These neural networks is called Hebzian neuroplasticity, neurons that fire together, wire together. The more you do anything, the easier it becomes to do that thing, whether it's playing a violin, um, or blowing up and getting angry at someone, right? We, we reinforce a certain pattern. And so the cultivation, this patient, steady kind of gardening uh, of, the, of the heart, of the mind, uh, in part is one of 
sowing the seeds of healthy qualities so that those become stronger and more available and reliable. So patience, this uh, one quality of patience, um, is a key energy on the path. When we cultivate patience, particularly together with resolve, it gives tremendous strength and power to the mind. The, The two work together to create a kind of unshakable, steady basis for our life. Uh, when I was a kid, I had the um, the good fortune and, and the privilege of um, spending time outdoors, doing some camping. Um, and uh, one of the things that I learned uh, at one point is uh, how to make fire without matches. And so to do that, you take, um, you get uh, a very hard stick and then a softer stick. And you have a little hole in the harder stick at the base and then you, you have um, a bow with a string in it that's wrapped, twisted around the, the post. And, and you run the bow back and forth. And that uh, spins the stick that's upright, uh, touching the, um, the base stick. And then you keep spinning that. And it creates friction where the two sticks are rubbing. And then you have some... some um, it's like very light, fluffy, uh, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's like um, like the inside of the bark of a tree or uh, something that's very soft and feathery that will, will light uh, very easily. So to do this, to make fire, it takes a while. <laughs> You've got to run that, uh, that bow with the stick back and forth for a good while. Your arm starts to hurt doing it. It takes patience. But it also takes resolve. Without the resolve to stay with it, you don't get fire. But without the patience, that steady, open, gentle quality of just keep going, you also don't get it. So the two work together. There's this kind of softness and gentleness of patience that allows things to be. And then this firm steadiness of resolve that doesn't give up. So today I want to focus on the quality of patience and uh, talk a little bit more about um, what this quality is and um, its relevance for our practice and our life. So ordinarily when I know for myself before I started meditating, uh, when we think of patience, we might think of kind of gritting our teeth and bearing something, you know, the mind is tense. It's, uh, it's contracted and it's, it's reaching or longing for the end of something, right? We're kind of just waiting for that irritation or that unpleasant sound or sensation or situation, whatever it is, to end. So this is not patience. This is a, a quote from, uh, from Sharon Salzberg. She writes, patience doesn't mean making a pact with the devil of denial, ignoring our emotions and aspirations. It means wholeheartedly engaging in the process that's unfolding, rather than ripping open a budding flower or demanding a caterpillar hurry up and get that chrysalis stage over with. So she's juxtaposing there, right, this sense of our habitual way of relating to things that take longer than we want. 
and the, the true quality of patience, which is a very connected and engaged process that allows things to take their time. So patience at its core is a, a relaxation of the heart and the mind. There's a relinquishing of resistance and, and together with that, a quality of softness, a quality of, of acceptance, almost a kind of surrender that allows the mind and the heart to open with a kind of spaciousness to the truth of what is. And in that, in that softness, in that surrender and opening, there's a kind of infinite strength that we can bear with anything. It's the strength of of water that is so soft, so gentle, holds no form, yet over centuries can wear away the hardest stone. Patience confers that quality of infinite strength to the heart. The the strength of nonviolent campaigns for social change, to wear down the resistance of injustice and oppression has at at its core this combination of patience and resolve. So in uh, in the Buddhist tradition, the word for patience is kanti, kanti, uh, translated as patience, uh, sometimes endurance, that sense of the marathon, that ability to endure, to go on, uh, forbearance, bearing with things. And sometimes it's even, in the, depending on the context, uh, can mean forgiveness, which I find so fascinating and which really connects with me and my own experience. That there's this quality of forgiveness to patients, right? When things aren't going the way we want them and there's that resistance inside that moment of letting go of acceptance, there's a forgiveness. It's like we're forgiving life for letting us down. Without that forgiveness, how can we be patient? The, the root of the word kanti is calm, which is also very interesting. It means patient, uh, but it can also mean earth. And again, for me, this, this conveys something profound about what, what is meant by patience, that at at the core there's this this very grounded, vast, immense quality to it, like the earth. And in one one text where the Buddha is talking about our capacity for patience and forbearance, particularly in the face of uh, insults and harsh speech, he, t- he one of the instructions he gives is to make your mind like the earth, vast, immense, and deep. So that even when someone comes and digs at you, you're unmoved, just like someone with a shovel can't dig all of the earth and remove it from the earth. Another image that I like to use, which I think I maybe brought up, uh, brought into the meditation yesterday, is the the shore around a lake. Uh, patience is like the, the, the edge around a great lake. And it's just, it's, it has that, uh, it's touching, it's contacting what's happening, embracing it, holding it, but very, very wide, very open. 
there's a line from the Dhammapada, one of the um, what we think uh, to be one of the more ancient uh, texts, one of the older texts in the Buddhist tradition. It's a collection of short sayings um, that says, "Kanti paramang tapo titika." So kanti, patience, paramang, uh, the perfection of patience, tapo titika. So uh, tapo uh, is a form of tapas, which means austerity. So the, the phrase, the, the line means patience is the supreme austerity, or patience is the highest perfection. And there's a play on words there. So in ancient India, there are uh, even, you know, in, in Indian uh, society and culture, it's a very deeply spiritual uh, culture, and there's a, a long-standing tradition of millennia of people seeking enlightenment in all different ways, all kinds of different paths and spiritual seekers called sadhus. It's embedded into, into the, the um, society and the way of life. There's different stages of life, and the final stage is the stage of seeking uh, spiritual awakening. And there are all kinds of um, ascetic practices that people will engage in and have for millennia of standing on one leg, lying on a bed of nails, wearing a hair shirt, all of these. So the Buddha is playing on this aspect of the culture that really values um, uh, in, this, in the pursuit of awakening asceticism and austerity. And the Buddha is saying the highest austerity, the highest kind of, um, uh, what's the other word I was just using? Austerity or, um, that's funny, it's totally gone now. But uh, the, the highest uh, kind of renunciation is patience. Sayada Upandita is a Burmese teacher who had a huge influence on the Western insight meditation movement. Um, he said once, uh, Patience paves the road to freedom. Why is this? Why is patience given such a high place? Why is it the supreme austerity, the supreme ascetic practice? That was the other word I was looking for. Why does patience pave the road to freedom? When we're patient, it gives us the space to allow the mind to unfold to allow that garden to grow. It takes patience for this practice to unfold. It's not a linear process. It's not something that we push a button and it happens. So the patience provides the conditions, the, one of the primary conditions for everything else to ripen on the path. Within the Dharma, there are three kinds of patience that are sometimes talked about. I remember the first time I heard this, it really just kind of blew my mind. Uh, the first is the patience to bear with that which is difficult. And this is a whole training in contemplative practice. It's called training in, <laughs> for those who have studied some, training in Dukkha Vedana. Uh, Vedana means feeling or feeling tone. It's the flavor, the agreeableness or disagreeableness of experience. Sometimes it's you know, referred to as a fancy term, a hedonic tone. It just means if it feels good or not. 
Dukkha Vedana. Dukkha means suffering, <laughs> means pain. So training in Dukkha Vedana, to, the patience to bear with that which is difficult. Who would want to do that? Well, is there anything difficult in your life? Anything uncomfortable? Anyone, uh, you know, this part of life. We all experience unpleasant things, unpleasant sensations, unpleasant circumstances, unpleasant people. If we can't bear with that, if we don't have the patience to allow that to move through us, we really end up suffering because we're struggling and fighting and resisting. This is the first kind of patience. The second kind of patience is patience when wronged or insulted by others. And again, just being very real about life, like this is part of what it is to be human. You know, people do things that really rub us the wrong way, sometimes intentionally, right? It's heartbreaking if it's a friend or a family member. It's angering or bittering when it's a colleague. It's, it's maddening, enraging when it's a public official and we feel helpless. And yet, this is the truth is that part of being alive means that we experience insult, injury, being wronged, injustice. Do we have the patience to bear with that? That doesn't mean condoning it. It doesn't mean not acting. It means not reacting. That we're still in the driver's seat because we're not getting pushed around by it. This is the second kind of patience. We never have to worry about what someone else does. We only have to worry about how we respond. The third kind of patience is the deepest. It said, this is the patience to face the profound truth without fear. I just want to let that one sit there. And that's for each of us to discover what is the profound truth? And why does it take patience to face it without fear? So how does this apply? How does this apply to our formal meditation practice? How does it apply to our day-to-day, right? When we're not sort of sitting, following the breath, or doing meditation exercises. So in this um, practice of vipassana, of insight meditation, uh, we've talked a little bit about these two parts, that there's the the calming and steadying, and then the uh, looking deeply and exploring experience. And patience is an essential quality for both. So with the steadying of the mind, this calming and abiding, where we're just coming back again and again and again to the anchor, if you've ever tried to meditate, for more than like five minutes, you know it takes tremendous patience <laughs> to keep coming back over and over and over again. Um, we have a cat, Lexi, who was crying at the door a few minutes ago, uh, and I am in the process of learning how to train her uh, to, um, you know, to sit, to come, to uh, be on a leash so we can go outside. Um, takes a lot of patience to train an animal. It takes a lot of patience to train this animal, to train this mind, to keep coming back with gentleness, with love, with forgiveness. 
the richer and deeper your quality of patience, the more readily your mind will settle. Because that quality of patience, that wide open shore of the lake, it doesn't get rattled when the mind goes away, when it keeps thinking, when it keeps getting lost. It says, oh, okay, let's come back again. And it's that, that, that evenness of patience that starts to coax the mind into, oh, this is nice to just rest here. So patience supports shamatha practice, calming, abiding practice. The next phase of vipassana, or it's not really a phase because the two go hand in hand and work together, but the, the other kind of aspect or dimension of vipassana practice is insight, is looking deeply, examining our experience, exploring what is it to be alive? What is this mind and body? What is it to feel afraid, to have regrets, uh, to feel joyful, to really become intimate with these experiences and start to understand their nature. So this, this investigation and mindfulness of the insight practice requires patience. We take that steadiness and then apply it to look deeply. Well, really looking deeply and observing something takes time. Remember that quote from Georgia O'Keeffe, no one sees a flower in a way, really. It is so small and to see takes time, like to have a friend takes time. So there's that quality of patience in being willing to observe something long enough to understand it. I had a science teacher in seventh grade uh, who taught me something, who taught all of us, I think, something about patience and observation. Um, in the spring of seventh grade, uh, actually, it was the winter. It was the end of winter. She gave, there's, there's Lexi. I don't know if you can hear her. Uh, she gave us an assignment. She said, I want you to find a tree and watch it bud and produce leaves and, and draw it you know, every day, every two days. I'm not an artist, a visual artist, per se. So to really draw something, right, I had to look at it really closely. And seventh grade, so I was, you know, what, 12 years old, some, something like that. I, I'd lived enough years to know what happens in spring. You know, the trees, they get leaves, the flowers grow, the grass turns green, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> this is New Jersey where the seasons are quite dramatic, right? Um, I was floored. I was floored. Every couple, every, I chose a sapling, a maple sapling right outside where we lived. And at first it's just a dead branch. And I drew this little branch and then this very, very, very tiny brown little bud. And then the bud starts to turn green and it's getting bigger and it's getting longer. And then I can start to discern it has like these little pointed sort of like kind of triangular like shields on it. And then it starts to open and this like iridescent soft, delicate leaf starts to emerge. It took the patience of coming back day after day and really looking at it, drawing it, to finally be able to see that, that branch and that leaf. To really see something and understand it takes patience. 
I remember reading about a, a conservationist named Cynthia Moss uh, who studied elephants in um, the savanna in Africa, and she said it took her 20 years of observation before she began to realize how complex they were as creatures. So I'm talking about this science project in seventh grade that probably took, you know, all of three or four weeks. Can you imagine studying an animal, studying it for 20 years in the field, observing them, writing down every movement, every... This is the quality of patience that we can bring to our spiritual practice, to observing the unfolding of life right here and now in our own experience. So we need patience to explore. We can't learn anything if we're always trying to get somewhere, always trying to accomplish something. This is from um, Trungpa Rinpoche, the uh, Tibetan teacher. When we sit, it's always for a purpose. If we're sitting in a car, we're thinking, how long is it going to take me to get to my destination so I can begin to rush? We count the mileage, we note the speed of our car, we watch the odometer, we sit for a purpose. It's a very interesting point that nobody has experienced that we can actually sit on a cushion without any purpose. None whatsoever. It's outrageous. Nobody would actually ever do that. We can't even think about it. It's unthinkable. It's terrible. We would be wasting our time. Now there's the point. Wasting our time. Maybe that's a good one, wasting our time. Give time a rest. Let it be wasted. Create virgin time. Uncontaminated time. Time that hasn't been hassled by aggression, passion, and speed. Let us create pure time. Sit and create pure time. This is the quality of Kanti, Kanti Parami. The Dhamma, one of the um, descriptions of the Dhamma is Akaliko, which means timeless. The truth, the, the fruit of awakening, is not found in time. It's not something in the future that we arrive at. If it were, it would be impermanent and end. It's beyond time. It's timeless. It's something that's always available and present. So how are you going to get there by shooting for it? You're going to go right past it. So we need this quality of patience to observe, explore, deeply enough, this moment, not something in the future, right here and now what's happening, for that to open, for the timelessness of the Dhamma to open. And here again, this is that pivot. This is that going against the stream, right? We want to make progress. We want to achieve something. We, we long to realize the truth, to have a deep fulfillment And we forget that progress is linear. It's defined by some imagined destination in the future that we move towards. And you can spend your whole life doing that and you'll never get there. It just keeps receding. This practice is a natural process. It's organic. 
bhavana, cultivation. It's something unfolding, like a flower blooming, like a bud in spring, like a caterpillar in a chrysalis turning into a butterfly. A flower doesn't doesn't advance. (laughs) It doesn't make progress. It doesn't move forward in time. It opens. It opens. This is from the, the poet Rilke. As for me, my internal pace is slow. Mine is the intrinsic slowness of the tree that embraces its growth and its blooming. Trees don't move forward in time. They send down roots. They explore the ground to find nourishment. They open with their branches and reach to the sky. These are the metaphors that can inform our practice. Like Tanisaro Bhikkhu said, good things always take time. The trees with the most solid heartwood are the ones that take the longest to grow. So we do the practice, focusing on what we're doing rather than getting into an internal dialogue about when the results are going to come, what they're going to be like, and how we can speed things up. Many times our efforts to speed things up actually get in the way. So patience, this allowing, this spaciousness. I have to give it time. We don't get peace. We give things peace. We give ourselves peace through patience by allowing ourselves to be with what's happening one moment at a time. So we take this into our daily life too. This is not just for uh, the cushion. So in the day-to-day, the practice of patience goes against the stream. It goes against the current of always getting something done as quickly and efficiently as possible. I have so much to learn from this. This is one of my most challenging practices. Uh, I'm Virgo, I'm white, I'm a man. I mean, I've gotten so much conditioning in this life about get it done, get it done quickly, be the best, get it done fast. You know, And when I'm not paying attention, I run people over. And it's very painful because I care. I, you know, I value relationships. I value non-harming. And uh, it's like stepping on a rake sometimes. You get hit in the face. But patience helps us to slow down. What happens when we slow down is we feel the momentum. We feel everything that has been driving us unconsciously for so long. That rush, that momentum to keep pushing forward. And we begin to experience directly Um, the patterning of the mind that keeps reaching into the future, that keeps waiting or wanting or leaning towards something else. It's called bhavatanha, the force of becoming, to move into the future that keeps our life moving ahead, moving ahead, moving ahead, always waiting for the next thing, never quite being fully here. And what are we rushing towards? always jumping to the next thing. Where is it going? It's only one place it's going to end up for all of us. So what's the rush? Why are we pushing forward? Why not slow down? So we can take this practice of patience into our day-to-day in very practical ways. You know, pause. When you finish one task, just... Okay, 
Ah, that's done. Let it settle. When this talk is over, in a couple minutes, before you, boom, get up and run on to the next thing, what's it like to take a deep breath? How would it be? How would the quality of your life change if you had more of a sense of ease and spaciousness and patience as you move through your day, as you move through the activities? What would it be like to give your full attention to one task, to one person, to one conversation? What would it be like to allow yourself to do nothing, to waste time, to create pure time, to not always be waiting and reaching for something else? I'd like to end with another quote from Rilke, one of my favorites and one of his more famous. Be patient toward all that is unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are now written in a very foreign tongue. Do not now seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point, the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. It's from Letters to a Young Poet. Okay, my friends. Uh, Before closing, I... um, I want to thank you for your kind attention, and uh, I also want to um, want to say that I'm so happy to be able to offer these teachings freely through the Insight Meditation Society, particularly right now during this time um, when so many are experiencing um, financial hardship, uh, unemployment, and uh, all kinds of insecurity due to the crisis. Um, and uh, IMS is operated mostly through donations. These teachings are offered freely. And if you're able to contribute, if you would like to, to support the Insight Meditation Society at any point this month, uh, there's a warm and open invitation to do so. Uh, These organizations and institutions that help keep the Dharma flourishing in our society uh, need our support to continue. So it's really an honor and a privilege to be here to share with you. It is a gift. It is freely offered. Um, And if you have the resources and the uh, uh, the impulse inside to uh, to give, uh, you can go to dharma.org and uh, offer some support to the Insight Meditation Society. All right. So as we end, I invite you to bring this quality of patience into your day. Thanks so much. Uh, see you tomorrow for, uh, for a Q&A. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.